For those of us who spend a great deal of time outdoors, it's hard to believe that there are many of those who don't. Especially when it comes to our national parks, there's an entire segment of the United States population, natural-born citizens, who seldom, if ever, visit. This is particularly true among people of color. African Americans, Hispanics, and other ethnic minorities spend far less time in nature than their white counterparts. And in a shifting demographic where minorities will soon become the majority, there's rising concern throughout the conservation movement that one day, in the not-so-distant future, most U.S. citizens will have no personal relationship with or affinity for the natural world. This concern is expressed most eloquently by National Park Ranger Shelton Johnson. The only permanent African-American park ranger at Yosemite National Park, his mission is to share with audiences, black and white, lessons of stewardship that illustrate the bond with nature that is every U.S. citizen's birthright. An interpretive ranger that tells the story of the Buffalo Soldiers, African-American cavalrymen who protected Yosemite at the turn of the last century, Johnson puts into context the importance of wilderness not merely as a point of national pride, but as an intrinsic value of what it means to be human. At the biennial meeting of the Conservation Alliance during the 2011 Outdoor Retailer Summer Market in Salt Lake City, Utah, Shelton Johnson was a keynote speaker. And in this unabridged audio recording, he's welcomed to the podium by Conservation Alliance Executive Director John Sterling. I'm James Mills, and you're listening to The Joy Trip Project. real honor to get to welcome Shelton Johnson to you all this morning. But in trying to think of how to introduce Shelton, I, I realize that there's a lot of different angles you could take on that. Um, the easy thing would be to say, oh yeah, he's the National Park Ranger who was prominently featured in the Ken Burns documentary about national parks. And that's where I first met Shelton uh, on TV. And, and uh, I was struck um, during that film at, at the eloquence with which he spoke about the value national parks have to all Americans um, of all backgrounds, and, and that really spoke to me. Uh, um, you also may know Shelton as the guy who managed to get Oprah to come visit Yosemite National Park, uh, which I don't know how you pulled that one off, Shelton, but pretty impressive. Um, but there's, there's an awful lot more to Shelton. He's a, he's a novelist and a poet, and his book, Gloryland, is, is for sale after his talk today. Um, and I'm, I'm about a third of the way through, but it's a, it's a wonderful story about uh, a, a guy named Elijah Yancey, who's uh, son of two slaves, born on Emancipation Day, who then goes off on his journey to find real freedom. And that eventually leads him to Yosemite National Park, where he serves as a member of the, the U.S. Cavalry protecting the, the brand new park. And, and uh, in, in Shelton, Shelton's words, much more eloquent than mine, so I'll let you read the book. But uh, it, it's true that he finally finds that freedom in, in wildness. And I think maybe Shelton has had that same experience 
in, in Yosemite. Um, but mostly Shelton is, is an advocate for increasing the diversity, uh, not just in our national parks, but our wilderness areas. And we invited him today specifically to talk to us about how can we bring more people of color into the conservation movement. And, and based on his experience trying to do that with outdoor participation and recreation. Um, you know, I don't have any brilliant thoughts on that except what I've learned in biology, which is that diversity is strength. And, and uh, you know, the, the organizations that we fund and the conservation movement uh, in general is not the most diverse, neither is the outdoor industry. So I think we can learn an awful lot from Shelton about, about how we can bring more vibrance into both the, the outdoor world, outdoor recreation, and conservation. I really look forward to hearing what you have to say. So please welcome Shelton Johnson. Thank you. Hi. How are you? Doing fine, thank you. <laughs> uh, this is the way I like saying hi. everyone hear me? Good. I feel the earth shifting, <laughs> which is fine with me because I think we need to shift the earth to make the changes that need to be made. You know, Dr. Martin Luther King once said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it does eventually descend toward justice. And I've always felt that the movement to bring in people of color into the national parks, into wilderness areas, is a social justice movement. I see it as not necessarily the final act of the civil rights movement, but I do believe that it is part of the civil rights movement. I believe it is part of citizenship. I believe it is part of what it means to be an American and what it means to be a human being, to have that intimate connection with wild lands, with nature, with that which is sacred. That's my perspective. That's my orientation. And so for me, when I think about those things and I think about those thoughts, I remember sitting next to Ken Burns and we were at the Ebenezer Baptist Church and it was an event prior to the release of the National Park film. And I remember thinking, I am sitting in the church where Martin Luther King spoke. And I was profoundly moved by that. And I remember thinking that if Martin Luther King were alive today, he would be saying to not only African Americans, but to all people of color, that national parks belong to you and you need to claim that inheritance. Sometimes you can't wait 
for someone to extend a, a welcoming hand. Sometimes you have to walk out and you have to grab or grasp hold of that thing with your own hands, both individually and collectively, and claim it. But you cannot claim something that you do not, do not perceive as being a value worthy of that attraction. And if you have been raised in a community where no one has talked to you about the beauty of the natural world, and the fact that you have ownership of that natural world, that natural world does not exist. Those places do not exist. And consequently, you go to sleep at night and you do not have dreams of the Grand Canyon. And I would say it is appalling that children in America go to sleep at night and do not have dreams of Yosemite Valley. They do not have dreams of the highest waterfalls in the world and the sunlight casting through that, that water, that spray, and casting its own shadow on the granite. They do not have dreams of that. They do not have dreams of walking in Zion Canyon on the Virgin River, looking up and seeing time itself, the color of sandstone, casting its own shadow on them and being cooled by time itself. They do not have dreams of that. And for me, that is a horrible thing. It is a terrible thing. It is an unconscionable thing because that is something that belongs to them. And the rivers that shape our canyons are the blood that has shaped them from the ancestors from the beginning to who we are today. And so I'm troubled by that. And I've thought long about why is it that this exists. And I've recognized that it exists for something that's very simple. I mean, I'm talking to you folks, and yet when I look out, I'm saying to myself, this is the change I wish to see in the world. These people can change this world. These people that I'm, all of us, collectively, can make these changes because of certain simple truths. We are so determined as a culture, as individuals, by the way we look at the world and the way we see ourselves in the world. When I was a kid growing up in Detroit, no one told me that Detroit was once a, a French colony established in the New World. No one told me that Detroit was one of the oldest cities in America, that black bears used to perambulate the streets of Detroit. Now, certainly, there were predators perambulating the streets of Detroit as I grew up. <laughs> I am aware of that. I first learned about predator-prey relationships in Detroit. But the fact that Detroit was once the place where there were osprey, there were bald eagles, there were buffalo, there were bears. You don't think that a place like Detroit today has that history, but all of our cities are rooted in wilderness. I remember talking to a group of folks in Yosemite that at one point, grizzly bears used to be seen roaming in herds. I'll repeat that, roaming in herds. How many people here have ever comfortably encountered a herd of grizzly bears? <laughs> How many of you who have that deep-seated sense of wilderness connection and you long and dream to savor that experience of encountering a herd of grizzly bears? <laughs> well, this particular, or these herds of grizzly bears were seen outside a small settlement by the name of Yerba Buena. Yerba Buena is the old name for San Francisco. And that gives you a sense of how much the world has changed and how much the beauty of the world is still here. I don't have to tell you that. You folks are out in it all of the time. But many people, many Americans, do not have that connection, do not feel what you feel. You guys get excited when I say certain things. I could raise the collective blood pressure in this room by just saying, the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Yellowstone, 
Wrangle Saint Elias. Oh, look at that. Ooh. I, I better stop because we might have to call a medic. You know. But there are kids who don't have that kind of reaction. And it comes down simply to this. One reason why Oprah Winfrey was so successful with what she did in coming out to Yosemite is that she did something that had not been done before. She issued a welcome, a collective welcome on a national stage for not only African Americans, but for people of color to visit national parks, to visit wilderness areas, to visit mountains, to visit the range of light, to visit stillness, to visit peacefulness. That hadn't happened before. It was the first time in the history of television that someone so prominent said, these places belong to you. And that is precisely why I wrote her that letter. Because I knew that such an introduction, such a welcoming, had never taken place. And that, collectively, is our job. Because when you're a child growing up in an inner city area, you do not hear, you do not see, you do not feel what everyone in this room sees, hears, and feels about wilderness. No one talked to me as a child about, we need to get to the Grand Canyon. You need to see all of that sandstone, that Vishnu schist. I mean, I just love just saying that. <laughs> Vishnu schist. What a name. Who wouldn't want to see that? Even if you didn't know what it was, you'd want to see it. If you're in a street corner in Detroit and you say, hey, brother, I got some Vishnu schist. <laughs> it's it. Well, show it to me. I've been hearing about that for a long time. Where do I get this Vishnu schist? You got to follow me to Arizona. I got to go all the way out to Arizona to get Vishnu schist? That's right. Yeah, is it good? It's billions of years of good. I mean, I mean. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. You know, I was hoping for inspiration when I stood up here, but you never know. When you, when you call out to the spirits, you never know when you might get one out there that says, you know. Yeah. I got that actually from Ken. Ken started going. I was just at the Grand Canyon teaching a class, at uh, NPS class in Fundamentals, and I just remember in that trail through time and the, 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 the schist and the, the, the nice, and or of, course, of course it's not nice, but nice is you know, metamorphosed granite for those of you who are really interested in that sort of thing. But the thing that struck me about that, that walk through time was that, Everybody is on a walk through time. And, but where do you feel that sense of deep time, that sense of cosmic time, other than in a wilderness area? And I realized that, uh, to some degree, my childhood was a period of deprivation from, because I didn't have that access to the natural world. And it's, it just bothers me that there's so many kids who do not have that experience. And what I'm thinking of right now, I'm thinking of the fact that, as part of my job, I swear in junior rangers. I swear in junior rangers from all over the world. And it strikes me that if I'm swearing in a junior ranger from Israel, from London, from Paris, from Antwerp, from Rio de Janeiro, and I'm highly unlikely to swear in a junior ranger from South Central LA, from Oakland, from Detroit, from Boston, from Philly, 
that there's something terribly wrong with that scenario? What is it that the people in Helsinki are hearing that the folks in Harlem are not hearing? And it struck me when I was asked to be a stand-in for Ken Burns at International Pow Wow last year. International Pow Wow is an event where people from all over the world gather and it's all tied to the tourism industry and they learn about some aspect of U.S. tourism. And the year that I was there representing uh, the national parks, I was Ken's kind of intermediary. I spoke for, uh, Ken did a, th a video introduction of me introducing his national park film. <laughs> and it was strangely looking up at Ken saying, well, hi Ken, and he's introducing me. And then I looked out to an audience of 5,000 people from 70 different countries. And they saw through that film why America's national parks are so wonderful. They felt that connection. You can feel a connection to national parks through film because it's art. And art has the power to reach down deep inside you, grab hold of your heart, and never let go. If you can't get to the rim of the Grand Canyon, find a great book, find a great film, find a great play, find anything about the Grand Canyon, and you can still vicariously experience that experience. And I remember thinking at the time, though, this is international powwow. Why don't we have a domestic powwow? Why is there not a powwow that is in South Central LA or in Detroit or in Philadelphia to reach our own citizens to let them know that this is part of our collective inheritance as Americans? One of the challenges of communicating the value of wilderness is that it is a value that has to be communicated. I'll say that again. One of the challenges of communicating the value of wilderness is the realization that it is a value that has to be communicated. And if that value is not communicated, it is not internalized. If it is not internalized, you do not have dreams at night of the Everglades, no matter how much you read about Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. But if it is internalized, then you have this hunger. And so it strikes me that it is peculiar that kids in other countries have dreams of visiting places in our own country that folks don't even think about going to. I've met folks in Fresno. Fresno is not that far from Yosemite, and they've never been to Yosemite. I've met folks in Oakhurst, which is right next door to Yosemite, and they've never been there because they've never received that message. And I'm saying this to you folks because we can all play a role with getting that message. When I was growing up in Detroit, I never opened up a magazine or a journal or turned on the radio or turned on the television or went to a movie that showed someone who looked like me doing the things that everyone in this room does. I didn't see an African-American and an Indian, because keep in mind, I'm not just of African descent, I'm also of Indian descent. My grandparents are Cher black Cherokees from Oklahoma on my mother's side. On my father's side, it's Seminole. I'm mentioning that because for me, whenever I visit the Great Smoky Mountains, it's a homecoming. And we tend to think of African Americans as being completely disconnected from the natural world. And the thing that strikes me as odd is African Americans are the descendants of Africans. I was an English teacher in the Peace Corps in West Africa in Liberia, and my students knew the name of everything around them in usually at least two different languages, English and their own indigenous language. And I remember thinking, how many Americans know the names of the trees just in their neighborhood, just where they grow up? 
We have over time become so separated from the natural world that we have lost that literal fluency with the natural world. We don't speak America in the way that the pioneers spoke America and certainly in the way that indigenous people still speak America. So I also see this as a language issue. The language of the earth itself needs to be taught, needs to be internalized, and needs to be spoken by all of us. Because if we lose that connection with wilderness, we do lose our connection with the value and meaning of America itself. No one arrived on these shores as an American. People arrived from wherever country they came from. But it was the process, and it is a process, of interacting with the land. Isn't that a good way to describe the pioneers, interacting with the land? When you lose a child on the Oregon Trail, that place where you lay that little boy or little girl on the ground, that has become sacred. And you may never even see that gravesite again. What must that have felt like for the pioneers to leave a little boy or a little girl on their journey to California, on their journey to Oregon? That is when America became America. That is when America became a sacred environment. It's that kind of connection. African Americans made, and other groups as well, made those kinds of contributions. It is in our history. But when that history is not taught, then it's meaningless. National parks, America's best idea? Question for all of you folks. How many of you folks heard that when you were in elementary school? How many of you heard that America's, great, America's best idea, the national parks, you heard that in high school, college? Don't you think, for, this is a question for all of us, that we should be hearing that in kindergarten? That if it's truly our best idea that has spread all over the world that we should be the most knowledgeable about that idea? It's just a thought. But it strikes me that something that is so powerful and meaningful, sometimes our own people are not very knowledgeable about that particular thing. And that's what I want to change. And that's, I don't think I want to change it. Do you, you guys want to change that? Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> Do you guys want to change that? Yes. No, no. There, there's some people out in the hallway that didn't quite hear that. Uh, do, you, do you guys want to change that? Yes. No, see, the pe there's people across the street in that show, and they got to understand that they're missing out on something. Do you guys want to change that? Yes. That's getting much closer. You know, and the thing is, it's so funny. Remember, you know, we here collectively can make those changes. And people sometimes say, oh, God, we, we'd love to bring in more Hispanics and, and African Americans. And we just, oh, it just doesn't seem to work. It just doesn't seem to work. Sometimes all you need to do is something as simple as this. Hi. That's it. I'm, I'm serious. If you never have that kind of contact 
then you never make that kind of connection. And when I was growing up in Detroit, I never had that kind of contact. No one ever extended themselves into my community and said, national parks belong to you. When I was in Detroit with Dayton Duncan as part of the national park film, I gave a, uh, there was a, an event in my high school. Keep this image in mind. I'm a park ranger, and I arrive at my old high school in a limo. Think about the concern in the face of John Jarvis, director of the Park Service. That's an image that may not be out there in the universe, a black park ranger showing up in a limo at an inner city high school. But I can tell you right now, it was the best image possible. Because it seemed to communicate to those kids, wow, whoever this guy and whatever he's wearing, he's successful. He's in a limo. And I said, well, this is not my standard gear here, you know. We went inside, this is Cass Technical High School, famous high school, graduates are famous like uh, Lily Tomlin, John DeLorean, Diana Ross, you know. And uh, I, there was an auditorium. We thought the whole school would empty itself out into the auditorium. And I was shocked to see that only about 60 students showed up. And they didn't show up because the teachers felt it wasn't important enough to break up their classroom study. And so there's Dayton Duncan, the writer of the National Park film, the writer of the National Park book based on the film, a major documentary filmmaker. And here's a graduate of this great high school in Detroit who's in a film that eventually would be seen by 34 million people and only about 70 kids were allowed to listen and see our presentation. This is part of the problem, is that there are people who do not perceive themselves as being part of the problem who are actually part of the problem. It's the sort of thing that you, you need to have everyone on board or no one is on board. You know, I, I wish that we could just continue this conversation as we're walking right out the door here and we just start walking toward Washington, D.C. And I wonder at what point numbers, our numbers would start to swell because people are drawn to energy. And when they see a, a few hundred people walking and talking about something, what's the conversation about? What are they doing? What are they talking about? Remember that scene in Forrest Gump? People are like, he's running. There goes Forrest, he's running, and, uh, and people like start running with him because there's something that's communal. There's something collective in our consciousness that when someone seems to have a drive for something, that draws us, there's something that's magnetic about it. And a movement is literally just that. A movement moves. And this, what we're talking about, this, what we're discussing, is a movement. And if we begin to see it as a movement and see ourselves as participants in that movement, then change can happen. And the change can be something so subtle. But often, things that are subtle are powerful. You folks that know about desert ecology recognize that the greatest erosive force, even in the desert, is water. And what seems to be missing when you're out in the desert? Water. And it's the same thing with this. To make the changes that need to be made, it's as simple as extending a hand, a genuine smile, and saying, these places belong to you. All you have to do is claim them and they're yours. That has never happened. It happened when Oprah Winfrey gave that introduction. Do you, how many of you folks feel comfortable when you don't, you're nervous about going to a place and you receive one welcome? Is that enough to go? Or do, would it be helpful to have two welcomes, more encouragement? I see some heads nodding. The point that I'm making is that we need more than that. We need a continuous movement toward welcoming people to these environments so that they feel they're really on the level. This is serious. They're serious about this. They're not just coming out and saying, hi, we want you in our parks. They said that on Monday. Now they're back on Tuesday, they're saying it. They're back on Friday. And then it's months later, they're still coming. They're really serious. That's the sort of movement that we need. And the people that are here right now can make that change. 
because when I was a kid, as I said, I didn't open up a catalog. That's, and I could see myself in that catalog. It'd be great if I opened up a catalog for any particular vendor, you know, anyone that actually is selling gear for backpacking or hiking, and I saw an Hispanic family. I saw an African-American family. I saw an Asian-American family. Because that is a subtle and not-so-subtle way of saying that this is part of who you are. It's like that drop of water in the desert that doesn't do much, but when it has company, it's called the Colorado. And then all it needs is a little bit of time, and you have the Grand Canyon. I find the whole idea of the Grand Canyon fascinating because we're drawn to a place that was taken away. It's an erosional feature. Something is missing from the Grand Canyon from a certain point of view. But what was revealed is that which is sacred. I kind of like the idea that the ultimate effect of erosion is the sacred. And this problem can be dealt with by eroding it away. And what will be revealed at the end of it will be the sacred. And people will connect with that because I don't think there's a human being on the face of the earth that has no connection to the sacred. And I think we need that. I think that all cultures need that. All cultures have that to some degree. And I think the parks are places, and we all know, where folks can find that. And so it's a personal mission for me. It's a personal mission for me that kids don't feel that connection that grow up in the inner city, that grow up in reservations, don't necessarily feel that connection to nature. And so my work is changing that. And that's why I wrote my book. I wrote a novel because I wanted to have and make that connection. Because history, history shapes the way we look at the world. And we have an issue in our society where history is something that people just say things like, ah, oh, it's not important, that's history. What did uh, Faulkner say? The past isn't dead, it isn't even past. What did H.G. Wells say? History has always been a race between education and catastrophe. So history is extremely important. There's so many great stories out there. We need to all work together to tell those stories, to communicate those stories, the stories that have been untold, like the Buffalo Soldier story. And we get those stories out there. They're in the textbooks. They're in the magazines. And then people start feeling these connections. And once you feel that connection, you take the time to go out there and see it for yourself. And this is the key thing. When you say park, I say park to you. You guys start to swoon. I just watched you earlier. I said Zion and Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Wrangell St. Elias. You guys were, oh, God. If he says one more, I'm going to pass out. Because you know what the word park means. But you start talking about a national park in an inner city community to people who have no idea of what a national park is to some degree. They make an equivalent of a city park or a county park. And they're thinking, why is this Ranger Johnson, why is Shelton Johnson going on and on about a park? That's the place that parents, my parents told me, don't be there after dark. You could get in trouble after dark. Oh, that's where those, those drug deals go on at, you know, down there. You don't want to go there. And suddenly I'm going, oh, Yellowstone, oh, this park, this park. Oh. They don't understand. But then you get one of those kids there, and they have that experience. This is the irony of everything that I've been saying, is that the very people who can most connect with Yosemite or Zion are the people our culture perceives as being least able to connect with those environments. If you have never had any kind of word, communication about the power of mountains, and then you find yourself in the presence of mountains, it is overwhelming. 
I remember seeing a kid, inner city kid, African-American from L.A. We were at Lower Yosemite Fall, and he just kept staring at it and staring at it, and he was crying as he was staring at it. And one of the instructors went up to him and said, are you all right? He says, yes. And he said, I had no idea that such beauty existed. He was profoundly moved by what he was saying. We had a program where we had kids from warring high schools, Dorsey and, Cren and Crenshaw High in South Central LA. They became buddies and pals because they were in a, an environment where the, the, the turf was a different turf. They could actually recombine in a completely different way with the, what was recombining in the air and in the light around them. And I remember these two young women coming up. They're from these two warring high schools. They were like holding hands and just had this look on their face. You know the look the look that people have when they see something that pulls something within them out into the world around them. They had that look. And that's a very powerful thing to see that look on these kids. Because I was looking at the future. And whenever you talk to children, you're talking to the future. So I want that future to light up the faces of kids who don't even know we're having this conversation right now. Isn't that a terrible thing? We're talking about people and they don't even know we're talking about them. We should change that. They should know we're having this conversation, and then they should become part of the conversation. And you folks can make that difference. You folks can make that change, because all you need to do is something not dramatic, but something subtle, but consistent throughout time. And the result will be beauty. The result will be wonder. The result will be the sense that this belongs to me. This belongs to all of us. And people will say, oh, yeah, something was taken away. You take it away, just like the Grand Canyon, and what is left behind is the sublime. And that's something that needs to be re put back in into our conversations, the sublime. It was really hot in the 19th century. People came to Yosemite for the sublime. How many people, what, what, what kind of look do you get in people's faces? Say, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to encounter the sublime. Worked for Stephen Mather, worked for John Muir, worked for Rachel Carson, worked for all these people. But that is what the park experience, not park, that is what the experience of this continent is all about, connecting with the sublime. And I think that kids should grow up having that hunger. So that's really what I'm all about, is increasing and creating a drive and creating hunger. Hunger for the earth, hunger for nature, hunger for wilderness. And that hunger is strongest than those who've only had a little bit of a taste of it. You give them a little bit of a taste, you can't keep them away but they don't even know it's on the menu unless we tell them that it's there. Yeah. So I want to thank you for listening to me. I could go on and on and, and uh, make an erosive effect, hopefully, on the psyche, but I think you all know and we all know. I just appreciate being here and talking to you and recognizing that, that even though I'm here as an author, I'm here primarily because of my parents. I had no national park experience when I was a little boy. I grew up in Detroit, but I also grew up in Germany and London. And I went to kindergarten in Contwig, Germany, and my parents, my mother and my father, took my brother and I to the Bavarian Alps for a little vacation. And I was so young, I remember just reaching up and holding on to my mother's hand and my father's hand, and my father's not here anymore. My father grew up in South Carolina under Jim Crow. My father never waxed enthusiastic about being in nature and wilderness because when he thought about that, he thought about the 30s and 40s and he thought about the KKK and it was a whole different universe. But I'm holding his hand in my mother's hand and the mountains were so gorgeous, they were so beautiful and I was out of breath. I remember still being slightly out of breath because I was so elevated and I realized heaven is not a place you have to die to get to. You just need good hiking boots. 
And we must be right there. If you, if, you, if you have the proper footwear, it can convey you to the range of light. I mean, think of the poetry and what we deal with. The, I work and live in the range of light. That sounds like some sort of dementia. And it's not dementia. It's the sort of dementia that's, that, uh, that religious people, spiritual people have, you know, that walk out of the desert, sometimes deranged and sometimes they can change the world. We can do that. We just have to believe that we can do it and we can do it. And how important is it? Like I said at the beginning, Martin Luther King Jr. would say, go ahead and do it. You know, you can accomplish quite a bit by just walking, like from Selma to Montgomery or the Kaibab Trail. It's just a question of who you bring along with you for the walk. And by the end of the journey, you'll be transformed. I don't know anyone, and I've never met anyone who is not transformed by the journey they're on. Everyone here in this room is on a journey. We are all being transformed by it. Well, we're all here ecstatic about the fact that wilderness leads to a transcendent experience. But you know what? If we can't talk to these folks, then that transcendence is lost. And there's nothing worse than the loss of transcendence. And I'm going to stop, although I know it's been documented. I have stopped talking. And I want to just say thank you again. And uh, keep that thought that we can make a difference and that transcendence belongs to everyone. Thank you. That was Yosemite National Park interpretive ranger Shelton Johnson. His book, Gloryland, is published by the Sierra Club. You can learn more about his work telling the story of diversity in our national parks online at sierraclub.org. For the Joy Trip Project, this is James Mills. Music this week by the band Hot Buttered Rock. The Joy Trip Project is brought to you with the support of our sponsor, Patagonia. For their latest in conservation and new media initiatives online, visit their blog, thecleanestline.com. Special coverage of the 2011 Outdoor Retailer Summer Market was brought to you with the support of Knupp, Watson, and Wallman. Find them at kw2ideas.com. Thanks for listening, but you know, we want to hear from you. So drop us a note with your questions, comments, and criticisms to info at joytripproject.com or find us on Facebook. Until next time, take care. <laughs>